first of all, you should be really clear whether, you know, startups are for you. It's not for a lot of people. Let's be clear about that. We got listed in the online fashion 100 and they had some experts kind of give comments to certain companies. And we got one from Brent Hogerman. His comment was exactly that. It was like, yeah, this could be huge for social networks. That did not work out. Probably mainly because I was a bit of an idiot. <laughs> I didn't really know what I was doing. Do you know, your phone would go off in the middle of the night saying, you know, my mother ringing or something, saying, oh, I've been taken into hospital. But they were lucky because they had investors who were willing to go with them. Because otherwise, how are you going to stay alive? Typically, they do not have these mountains of cash, like enable them to weather a few tough quarters or, or even years. To get those breakout consumer businesses, it's just got to be something that's server meltingly exciting for people. In this episode, I sit down with Dom Fendius, now the founder and CEO of Kush, a tool that enables creators to monetize their own brands. But that wasn't always the case. Kirsch is actually Dom's fifth business. So he brings a lot of learnings and wisdom from his previous four ventures into his current business. And of course, in this episode, which I'm so happy to share with you today. I hope that you really enjoy listening to this. And I really hope that you take away a practical learning that you can apply to your own entrepreneurial journey. As a bit of a trigger warning, he does share the very sad story about how he tragically lost his dad due to cancer. So if anyone has been through something similar or been affected by a loved one who has unfortunately been lost to, to a sad illness, then just a heads up, he's going to be sharing a bit about that sad story. And nonetheless, Dom is honestly one of the most positive and optimistic people I have ever met, um, despite these tragedies and despite the previous four failed businesses. So if there's anyone to share a glimpse into what it takes to be resilient and to keep going, then Dom is your man. Please enjoy this episode. Let's get right in. Dom, welcome to Strategy and Tragedy. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I feel like you are one of the most perfect entrepreneurs to interview. You've set up not one business, not two business, not three businesses, but five businesses. Is that correct? That is right. I've just counted them. So yes, that's <laughs> right. And that's very kind of you to give me such a nice intro. Yeah, five businesses. Um, so let's do a rundown. So let's yeah. go in chronological order then. Business number one. Business number one. Um was directly out of university. It was a free magazine called 21UL. And as I was just saying to you, I can't remember what that even stands <laughs> for. Um, I really don't remember that. That's so weird, isn't it? The U is maybe urban. The yeah. L, well, like 21, urban I think 21, I think, was the 21st century, right? Because it was at the beginning of the 2000s. And then, yeah, I think maybe it was like urban living or something like that. Uh -huh. In fact, that, I think that's it. Look, <laughs> that just came back to me. Um, yeah, so what, what that was about, I'd um, been living in Berlin for a year as part of my degree course. And in Berlin, there was a really popular free magazine. Uh, and it, it was just a listings magazine, like what's going on in the nightlife uh, club scene. Um, and then when I came back and finished my final year at uni, I thought, okay, I, that's a cool idea. But then what you also had was people like Vice were beginning to become quite big. 
and they i think they had launched in london but they i might be wrong about this but i feel like they were more of like a, did they start in canada or new york can't remember anyway mm. so they were doing quite well and you would be able to get copies around you know shortage but probably nowhere else in the uk so the idea was to kind of combine those listings and a few fun kind of you know irreverent articles interviews profiles and it was just a small kind of pamphlet sized magazine which now sounds insane right the idea of a real magazine but obviously this was pre i mean it wasn't pre the internet but it was it was pre the internet being ubiquitous so um yeah that was the first business uh and that did not work out um how come yeah i mean probably mainly because i was a bit of an idiot <laughs> uh, not that i'm being a bit unfair on myself what i mean by that is i didn't really know what i was doing right i was whatever i was 22 or 23 and starting a magazine i mean people do do that and they're successful but um it was also because the internet had become this big thing and you know advertisers were it's kind of difficult to get hold of for magazines um but at the same time actually and this isn't the reason it didn't work out but my father was really ill at the time and that definitely took the focus off a little bit but i would never use that as an excuse but he so he had lung cancer and it was quite a i don't know people watching this if they've ever been through someone in their family with cancer it's quite a all-consuming thing right um and it's uh yeah and that was very much the case you know it was you couldn't really be in like i'd have to rush up to the family who were in warwickshire so you could you know you'd it would kind of be a very bitty existence and you know your phone would go off in the middle of the night saying you know, my mother ringing or something saying, oh, he's been taken into hospital. So, but it definitely wasn't the reason it didn't work out, but it also didn't help. Um, and we can talk about this a bit later, but it's actually quite an important moment, I think, in my, definitely in my life, but in what I then chose to do, because, you know, it tells you that nothing's guaranteed right my father was quite young he was 58 wow so um yeah but it made me think all right i don't want to just spend my whole life in an office working for other people um so anyway that was the first one then i did go and work in an office for other people for a few years because i thought i need to get some proper experience and some money so i went and worked in the city um which I mean, was in a sense good. I didn't really enjoy it. I didn't find the work fulfilling at all. Uh, I didn't find it that intellectually demanding, but it was a lot of work and it just wasn't fun. It made me think, is this what, this shouldn't be what work is, right? So anyway, that, yeah. And this was pre-financial crisis. So it was, you know, crazy times people were, just making ridiculous amounts of money. There wasn't quite the disdain for bankers that there is now because it was pre-financial crisis, but there certainly was, you know, so we'd have protesters outside the front of the bank that oh, I worked wow. at quite often. And uh, yeah, 
anyway, so that was that was a bit of a yeah, quite a different thing to you know trying to start your own business. Mm. Um, yeah, and after that, next business was Stitch, which essentially we collected the best fashion bloggers' photos and we made them shoppable. So you know you just scroll through a feed of people wearing nice clothes and it's very much like on Instagram now if you hover over the pictures they would have the details of the products and you could buy them but this was pre-iPhone so it was all on the desktop it was quite clunky I mean it worked but you know it was it's much more of a mobile experience I think or, or what I mean is it works better on the mobile mm. um so yeah I did that I can't remember how many years, let's say three years, got some really good traction, you know, got a load of great press coverage. Um, I think I told you before we had, um, I remember having a meeting with uh, an investor and he was going, Dom, you are going to be so rich. This is amazing. (laughs) And I was like, wow, that's awesome. (laughs) Um, And yeah, it didn't quite work out. but yeah, yeah, we, we did quite well, right? I mean, we got we got lots of users. Um, and that was my first, I would say, my first real tech startup. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that kind of gave me the bug then to mm. let's get into this and, and let's um, let that be my career and my kind of mm-hmm. path in life. So why didn't this one work? So this one didn't work because... Um, that is a good question. I think we were too late to, and not anticipate, but to see how powerful the iPhone was going to be mm. in terms of uh, how the consumer behaved. Um, and I, and I think also, you know, we kind of got because I wasn't sure what you know, what the direction of the business was. I got swayed by what a lot of other people were telling me, mm-hmm. right? And you, you'd have people saying, oh, you should do this as, um, you know, white label the software to other people, you know, to, to Facebook so that, uh, you know, they can plug it into to all the photos on Facebook. And I was like, wow. And in fact, we got, we got listed in the online Fashion 100 in, I think, in 2010 which was in Vogue magazine, you know, the top 100 people in the UK in the world of online fashion. And we, and they had some experts kind of give comments to certain companies. And we got one from Brent Hoberman, who, you know, obviously now is Mm. is a huge player in the London scene and was the founder of lastminute.com. And his comment was exactly that. It was like, yeah, this could be huge for social networks. And so, you know, because I didn't know and I didn't have, the um, faith in my own, or the, uh, you know, that, uh, or what's the expression, you know, the strength of my convictions, whatever. Anyway, you mm. know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of thinking, yeah, maybe we should go down that way. And really, what we should have done is we should have just built a monster social platform where people could upload their own photos. I'm not saying we should have become Instagram. I thought that for a long time. But actually, there are businesses that have been successful since, particularly around the world. And I guess most famous one now is what's it called? Like to know it? Yeah. Or like to know? Mm. Yeah. Um, 
which do something very similar. But back in the day, it was people like Polyvore. And I wonder about how sustainable the business model is for that kind of business. That was one of our major flaws. Because what we had was we would do mainly street style photos, right? And it wasn't user generated. We have photographers who would go out mm. and take pictures. Right. And that we wanted to change that over time. But in the beginning, that's what we did. Mm. And, um, you know, so it'd be street style. So a lot of it was vintage. You know, people have bought them in vintage stores, so it's difficult then to find an exact right. copy of it. That wasn't such a huge problem. But um, it, it just skewed very much to a young market mm. who were looking at these pictures. What does that mean? It means that the clothes are not that expensive, mm. right? So how are you monetizing that? You monetize it through an affiliate model. Mm. So if someone buys, you know, if someone clicks on the photo and then they buy the item of clothing, we would get a commission. But, you know, if that was back in those days, if that was Topshop, you'd be getting 5% commission, right? And it would be a top which costs 18 pounds or something. Mm. So actually what we fell foul of in the longer term was that classic cost of acquiring a customer against mm. the lifetime value of the customer. Mm. It just didn't add up because, you know, to get those people to come and visit cost a certain amount and then they just the basket value was so low. And, you know, that's different with, I don't know, Someone like List, for uh, for instance, or or Farfetch, you know, any of these big fashion players that have come out of London, they were more luxury, yeah. right? So the average order value was higher, and mm. totally different business. But if you're going for the sort of mass market, so that was a mistake that we made, um, and yeah, we could have fixed that if we'd sort of moved faster and got it user generated. But as I say, that the user-generated thing became exponentially easier with the iPhone. And we were just too slow, really. And we just didn't see. And that's, you know, that's completely my fault. I was not a technical founder back then. I'm not really one now, but I'm definitely more technical. Um, and, yeah. So there's an interesting juxtaposition with Stitch where on the one hand, the concept sounds really ahead of its time mm. because as you say, you've got the likes of like to know it and this is pre-Instagram, pre-iPhone. Yeah. This sounds really ahead of the curve, but then it's juxtaposed with being too late to adopt the whole kind of growth of the iPhone and the apps and the mobile yeah. take up with it all the user generated content. So it's kind of, the idea was there, yep. but I guess this is where it comes back to your technical abilities and just actually implementing and adopting that more mobile tech yeah. for it to take off. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never really thought about it in that way, but um, kudos to you because that's very perceptive. <laughs> um, so business number three then. Business so number three. Uh, yeah, that was Genset. And that was um, a men's focused design uh, e-commerce app, essentially. And um, so it encompassed all nice designy kind of things that you could buy, right? It wasn't mm -hmm. just clothes, it was also furniture, 
homeware, accessories. So you took the learning of the average order value from Stitch and the low value, like 18 pound Topshop item to actually more expensive yes. units. So that was one learning you took to your next business, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah, and um, and we actually, we didn't want to hold any stock either. So that was also an important mm. thing. Not that we held stock with Stitch, obviously, but I realized you don't want to be in that game. Mm. That's like a very sort of capital intensive game. Um, but we did we did do it a little bit, you know, we got some items in, but what we tried to be was more of a marketplace where we went out to, um, you know, say, good example, we had someone in Portugal who made um, like laptop cases out of cork. Uh, and we essentially said, use us as, you know, your, your shop front, and um, and then they did all the the fulfillment of it, mm -hmm. uh, and and what we what we did we had a, a swipe function kind of like Tinder, which was very new at the time. So I was really excited at the time about oh this is the new you know UI of mobile with people swiping through everything mm -hmm. because before everything had been. You know, it's just on a grid that you scroll through. Mm -hmm. So ahead of the curve again. With well, I don't uh, <laughs> It was quite a common thing that was being done at the time, actually. I'm not going to. Um, but it really was Tinder that made that swiping yes. left and right take off. Uh, yeah, yeah, for then. sure. No, no, no. It was after them. Okay. It was after them. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, it was very much a response to what they were doing. Okay. Yeah. Um, but there were like at least two other startups in the UK doing that. Uh, but we were the only one focused specifically on men. Mm -hmm. um, and and I don't know if, like, we couldn't, we couldn't get that one to scale massively. And I'm not sure even to this day whether that was because it was just aimed at men. And one of the learnings I definitely took was don't just target men. Mm because you know men are really bad at sharing you know unless it's something like football gossip or something <laughs> or you know beautiful women or something i don't know mm. they don't share like you know oh, i went on this app or whatever they don't mm. do it that much mm. whereas women we found they really share they tell their friends and so i took that as a learning but mm -hmm. um we couldn't get the Driving traffic to download apps back in those days was kind of wild west, right? It was difficult. So again, you're kind of, it always comes down to this. It's like, how do you acquire the traffic? Mm. And if it turns out it's more expensive than the money you can make from people downloading it, you're not going to build a great business. Well, I completely agree with you, but I do want to jump in here because thankfully this is where the shift in tides has happened again more recently in business. I feel like we're coming out of this era of this growth at all costs mm. mentality where you do look at the unicorns of today and the big tech darlings yeah. and revenue profit margins do not even enter the conversation ridiculously. Obviously it's ludicrous. Mm but there's that whole gaining market share, wooing the investors along the way, yeah. getting them to just continually back you and back you. And then when you hit that point of critical mass, that's kind of their logic, then you can start to think about that monetization. Yeah. So 
what are your thoughts on that mentality from the tech startup position? So we're now on like the second or third business or second, third, like proper tech business of yours. Mm. And both of those seem to have, they would have benefited from that market share sort of mentality. But what you've talked about is very practically, very sensibly is CAC acquisition costs, how to drive traffic. And it just doesn't work from a very sensible standpoint. Yeah. So I think you, and I've thought about this a lot recently because I've spoken to some people who really just focused on building products that people love mm. and they abandoned any kind of um, revenue model, right? But they were lucky because they had investors who were willing to go with them. Mm. And obviously, you know, people always look to Bezos and Amazon for doing this, you know, just grabbing market share. And but let's not forget, he was getting pilloried by the financial community saying Amazon's ridiculous business never turns a profit. But look at it now. Mm. So what you've got to have in that situation is investors that support you. Because otherwise, how are you going to stay alive, mm. right? That's the problem. And startups only is, exist in the short term, mm. right? They don't have, typically, they do not have these mountains of cash like old legacy business, businesses do that enable them to weather a few tough quarters or, or even years. Mm. So, um, but having said that, I my thinking these days is just to build something that people will love and you know a revenue model will find its way mm. you know unless it's something which is never going to be monetizable and there are plenty of examples of that but um no i think if if you just keep building things that people love either you're going to get the investors to back you or you find some way of monetizing it mm. so mm. but if you're just focused on making revenue from day one and that can work but i don't know if you're ever going to build that breakout business yeah, and that's exactly. always been my thing i i wanted to build something massive mm. like i mean you know kind of shame inducing makes people feel uncomfortable how big it is that mm. sort of thing yeah great which you know that hasn't happened yet but mm. that's kind of that's what excites me the prospect of being able mm. to do that um, and I think for those kind of businesses, and by the way, I'm never going to build a like an enterprise SaaS business. Well, I don't think so. I mean, maybe, but <laughs> it doesn't excite me, uh -huh. right? Um, but yeah, to get those breakout consumer businesses, it's just got to be something that's, you know, server meltingly exciting for people uh -huh. and kind of catches fire in their in their brains, and and that can be doesn't have to be something purely aimed at the consumer in a kind of, you know, social network kind of way or, or Tinder kind of way. It can also be something that um, facilitates uh, making money for small business people. I, I would include consumer in that anyway. Mm. I love that expression. I just want to underscore the server meltingly exciting. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Yeah. So we'll pick up your timeline in just a sec, but on the subject of having VCs to back you, were each of your businesses venture backed? No. Okay. Yeah. So um, 
And let's exclude 21UL from the conversation sure. because that wasn't really... That was really... the, uh, the first pancake. Although, yeah, we were, on, um, we were online with that, but it was very much an afterthought that it would be a web yeah. magazine, right? Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, the first two businesses, Stitch and Genset, were not completely bootstrapped, but friends and family, basically. Mm-hmm. And you had your corporate roles in between those. So so had the corporate role in between 21UL and Starting Stitch. Okay, so did that provide a bit of a buffer? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, exactly. Cool. And that was always the intention that, mm. you know, first of all, and this was, it didn't really work out this way, but I thought, oh, if I get into finance, first of all, I'm going to build up a network. That kind of did happen. Uh-huh. But I'm also going to learn about, you know, venture capital, that didn't happen because I was working for an investment bank and working for a family office. So it's just a million miles well, away. Well, you don't know from, what you don't know, do you? Yeah. So you <laughs> yeah. don't beat yourself up about it. So, yeah, that. but it did, yes, give me some money to, you know, fall back on and take the risk with. Yeah, great. So, and, and those, I can't even remember how much we raised, but it would have been like, you know, less than 100,000. Okay. Um, and... You know, I'm I'm really good at conserving capital. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I sometimes cringe when I was doing some advisory work, seeing what people spent their money on that their investors had given them. And, you know, just, I mean, I, I've heard so many stories about people buying flash Italian furniture for their office. Oh, no. And I'm like, you can't be doing that. You just can't be doing that. But the investors, mm. I don't know why the investors don't clamp down on it. But anyway, that's, right. you know, up to them. I mean, you mentioning Amazon before and uh, just connecting it with this Flash Italian furniture yeah. mention. There's that famous story of how um, in Amazon they would use doors as their desks. Mm. Have you heard of that? I have heard about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just as the reminder yeah. that like all that matters is the customer and how we're making money you can have a plank of wood for your desk yeah. it just happens to be a reused yeah. door yeah so you can really take it to an extreme can't you but yeah there's something interesting with that for just for just a moment as well because i identify with you in terms of the risk appetite with money i think likewise good at conserving capital saving cash but i actually not this is obviously your interview but i think i've perhaps gone too far down that way and it's yeah. one the analogy i always think of is you know going too slow on the motorway is just as dangerous yes. as speeding and so you do need i think i could have maybe upped my risk tolerance mm. a little bit and you do need to have a little bit of that go for it not be so conservative but yeah. of course it's, it's a fine line isn't it yeah no that is a really good point and uh, i remember having a conversation with someone who sort of been years ago, probably about 10 years ago, and they raised, um, I, I don't know, let's say probably less than 10 million, somewhere, somewhere between two and a half and five million. I remember saying to them, oh, what are you going to spend it on? And he was like, well, I'm going to spend it. It's not just meant to sit in the bank. Mm, exactly. And I was like, yeah, fair enough. But I think the danger is in the early days, you don't know where you should be spending it mm. because if you haven't found product market fit, then mm. you're just throwing spaghetti at the wall. Exactly. Aren't you? Yeah. Mm. So, and actually, I'm I'm saying more. You you shouldn't be spending it on 
um, just things that are not super frivolous. Critical, frivolous yeah. That's the word. Yeah. yeah. But on the doors as tables thing, <laughs> I, I've changed my thinking on that. And I do think a good working environment now is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, if you want to get the best out of your people, don't be sticking them in a dungeon with no windows yeah. and, you know, just terrible chairs. <laughs> There's a fine line, isn't and, it? And, <laughs> you know, okay, changed with work from home, et cetera. But no, no, I, I'm so I'm in a co-working space now. I really like it. I get a lot out of it. I want to go in every day nice. because it's nice Yeah. because we have free coffee. There's beer on tap. Yeah. The people are nice. Three guesses which co-working yeah. space Dilma's at. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, you know, nice furniture. The yeah. chairs are good. There's lots of breakout spaces. So, yeah, I, I, I have shifted my view on that. Not that I was one of those people who sure, would make sure. you work in a, a cellar. You but know. appreciation for some of those less tangible ROI costs right yeah. that makes sense yeah so picking it back up so we're on to business number three now which i believe is the first time that you've actually gone into more of a co-founder relationship Absolutely. yes okay cool yeah so let me tell you about how that started yeah um so i'd finished with jensen and hadn't worked as well as we wanted to so i was like okay let's on to the next one. on to the next one and uh, I was kind of figuring out what am I going to do next? And then I got this um, either an email or a LinkedIn message from this uh, this guy in America who was like super enthusiastic in his emails. And, uh, and he was like, oh, I've seen what you've done, Dom. I've got this project I'm working on. Um, you know, it's basically making smart clothing labels. So it connects any piece of clothing to the Internet. And that would have been 2016. And and so I looked up this guy. First of all, I thought that sounds kind of cool. Mm. And um, I looked the guy up uh, on Google and, you know, he'd done, he'd been through YC before with his previous business. He'd done a cool business before that had got loads of kind of like A grade Silicon Valley angel investors Wow. Um, and so I was like, I've got to meet this guy. So I met him and he was, yeah, he's very, very enthusiastic and um, outgoing and, and super bright. And so I was like, oh, yeah, let's, you know, we sort of spent three months kind of getting to know each other. Dating. Founder dating, whatever you want to call it. And we would go to, um, well, where was it? It was uh you know, where Cold Drops Yards is and mm. King's Cross, but the bit above there, Granary Square. Mm. And I can't remember if it is it Caravan, the one mm. that's on the end. Yeah. So, yeah, we used to go there the whole time and mm. get overpriced smoothies. <laughs> um, and then kind of work on the business. And then in the end, we were like, should we give this a go? Let's give it a go. And um, so, yeah, we decided to start this business together, which was going to do what I just described, um, smart wireless clothing labels. Uh, and it was called App Apparel. And I was like, wow, okay, this is really exciting. He's super smart. He'd done some incredible technology. It was hardware though, so I knew that was going to be a struggle, right? Mm. And there were so many challenges because if you're putting a chip in a 
piece of clothing, you know, that's going to have a battery in it. And then you're going to put that through the washing machine. Mm. Even if you're putting it through the dry cleaner, I don't know how knowledgeable you are. I didn't know this. Dry cleaning isn't completely dry. <laughs> there is a bit of water or, you know, chemicals or whatever. Mm. That blew my mind, by the way. <laughs> I'm stupid, maybe. But I was like, what? Felt completely deceived. Yeah. <laughs> but then actually, yeah. But then, you know, how would they clean it without water, Dom? Think about it. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, we kind of uh, put together an idea of how things might work. And we um, we went to a VC who ran a kind of, they were a VC fund and a private equity fund who also had a small um, accelerator. But that was kind of the way they did their VC investments was through this accelerator. They used that as like deal flow. Yeah. And actually they used that to then excite the big, um, so they have partnerships with people like John Lewis and TK Maxx. Mm -hmm. And and that, the way they did that was to say, oh, look, we've got this pipeline of startups at the cutting edge. Mm. Um, so anyway, we raised investment from them. Uh, and yeah, I, I really thought that was going to be. How much did you raise, by the way? Do you remember? I can't remember, but it wasn't a lot. It wasn't okay. a lot. It was a pre-seed round. Right. How did it compare to your friends and family? Like more than that, more it was than more that. than that. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. So this is like another. Yeah, yeah, it's another, another step up. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so what we we what we really managed to do well with that business is excite brands and retailers. Not all of them, by the way. I'll tell you a story. I, I won't mention who the brand is, but we met the C-suite, like the whole senior team, including the owners of a big retailers. And we were pitching it to them as saying all the stuff that you can do in store. If you ha imagine your all of your clothes in store were connected to the Internet, you'd be able to because it interacts with a mobile, you'd be able to get some kind of knowledge of, you know, does it get picked up and taken into the changing room or does it just get picked up and dropped? Um, but what we could also do is we could have enable people to pay on their mobile device which would have disabled the chip and so they could have left and it wouldn't have triggered the alarm right mm. that was one of the things uh, and we did all the research into saying into how much queuing costs retailers and um and i remember speaking to him and they were like the the owner of this brand or the ceo whatever i think it's the same in this retail they were like, yeah, but if they're queuing, that's a good thing. And I was like, hmm. I mean, it is in the sense that they want to buy, but it's not a good thing if the queue's so long that they leave. Yeah. And that was our whole point. It's costing you X million pounds per year with people leaving because the queue's too long. Right. Not them specifically, but we had yeah. a broad kind of, you know, we found some research which showed that. Anyway, they weren't interested, but subsequently Amazon is building, I mean, it, you know other retailers building stores where you can check out walk in, it's walk not out. the same technology mm. but anyway so um yeah we we managed to excite retailers and brands but then the thing we couldn't quite find the value in or for was the consumer and you need the consumer buy-in because they have to have an app on their phone yeah otherwise you know the uh 
the uh, the chip is just communicating with nothing, right? Mm-hmm. It needs to interact mm-hmm. with an app. So we thought, well, what are we going to do? We're going to give styling advice, and that's the path we went down. And turned out it's quite a flimsy thing, right? Um, and it, yeah, it just didn't cut through. But we we were getting close to raising investment because it was such a big, interesting idea. Um, but ultimately, we decided this is not going to like. Again, Brian, who was my co-founder, is exactly the same as me. He wanted to build a monster business and we just couldn't see a way that this would ever be a monster business. Mm. So in the end, we, I think me more grudgingly than him decided to knock it on the head. I thought, yeah, maybe we could do something and maybe it would be different to what we're doing now. And I think we should carry on going, but he wasn't so convinced. So, you know, that's fair enough. And Mm. we, we, um, yeah, we decided to shut that down before raising the next round, mm-hmm. um, which with hindsight is definitely the right thing to do. That's good. Yeah. That's good. So then you went back into employment. So actually then I, um, yeah, I really didn't know what I was going to do after that. And I was pretty down about it because yeah. I was so excited when I started that. Mm. And uh and, you know, I felt like we'd, we'd jumped through a lot of the hurdles that you need to at the beginning. And then it had just been a disappointment. Mm. Um, so I was quite down for a while and I kind of, you know, just, um, what's the word, moped around at home going, what am I going to do? Mm. What am I going to do? Um, and actually what I settled on doing for a while was a podcast. Uh, and that was really good because I just was speaking to people and, you know, I was curious about their stories mm. and it just reignited something in me. And I was like, okay, I want to get back into the startup scene. Nice. Um, and I talked to a couple of uh, accelerators about working for them. And I was really excited about that. Uh, but actually, in the meantime, I was doing some advisory work for... Um, an organization called Capital Enterprise. And they had a program called the Green Light Program, which helped founders get investment ready for their first round. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. And that was, I'd never done that before. I'd advised uh, investors before, but I'd never advised founders before. And that, I just loved doing that. And at the beginning, I thought, how can I be useful to people who are doing? whatever I so I helped like a a diabetes app um an illegal tech AI business and I was like at the beginning I thought how can I help these people I don't know anything about that but actually very quickly you realize at the early stage the problems are all the same it's just Mm. the sector's different Mm. right so down the line probably I wouldn't have been any use because then you are dealing with sector specifics but at the beginning it's all about how do we get the deck uh, in the right shape to raise investment um you know how do you get your first 100 customers that's okay there are nuances mm. but it's pretty similar across the board so i did that uh, and from that actually uh, a couple of the guys i was advising were in WeWork labs which was the internal accelerator at WeWork, and uh, i met some of the WeWork people and they asked me if i'd go and be the entrepreneur in residence at WeWork labs so i did that and amazing nice so much fun yeah. so much fun in the 
like the the pre-IPO, pre-COVID days of WeWork when wow. it was, yeah, good times. Wow, <laughs> good times. Good times. They had money to spend <laughs> and trust me, they were spending it. I know. I went to a party where Mark Ronson showed up. Oh, wow. And brought I didn't along go to Lily any of those parties. What? I, uh, I definitely got first-hand flavor for some of the WeWork yeah. craziness. So watching, what was the show called? Um, we... Oh, yeah, what was it called? Oh, oh, we crashed. Was that's it? it. Well yeah. done. Thank you. You got yeah. it. We that's a great show. It was such a, like seeing it firsthand was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can totally picture. So that's exciting. Yeah. So your current business, was that born out of the WeWork Accelerator or just your own thing on the side? So how are well, you now? Yeah, again, so when I was in there, I was kind of thinking, what am I going to do? Am I going to, you know, carry on in kind of an advisory sense should I try and become a VC mm. and what happened though I was talking to these people and I was like I think I can I think I could build a business that's going to be really big you know do you think that this experience sorry to jump in here is already quickly but this experience here with the advisory work and being the EIR did that help you to kind of lick the wound so to speak from these for sure businesses for sure yeah yeah because you get really down when you shut down a of business course. right yeah and it's it's incredibly tough because you put your all into it and and you think that that's who you are it's not mm. but you think oh everyone's judging me on this and that probably is true by the mm. way mm. but it doesn't define you but you really think it does mm. But really people get, you know, no one's thinking about your failures for very long. They might do, they might sort of go, huh, I knew he was going to fail just to make themselves feel better or whatever, mm -hmm. right? But yeah, so yeah, the advisory work was the perfect way of building up the self-confidence yeah. as well. Because people are coming to you for your opinion. And, and you know, I was getting great feedback because um, each session I did was you know they had to give feedback on and i won an award in the you know in the, in the year i was doing it oh, congratulations. and their internal so you know i was like oh that's good that's i'm not a, you know i'm not an idiot yeah. as much as you know when you're down that is what yeah, you think of right course. yeah exactly so um no it's really good great. but yeah it also made me uh, uh, you know i was looking for a project whilst i was doing it because i had a fair bit of spare time and um and I just stumbled across a problem, which I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then I saw something that was happening in China in e-commerce. And I was like, okay, that kind of, that wouldn't necessarily work here, but there are elements of it that would. So the new business, um, Kirsch, uh, is essentially a platform that helps creators start their own consumer brands. So, um, you know, our first client was a company called Jomo London, which is one of the ladies from Made in Chelsea and her business partner, who's a celebrity makeup artist. And it's a sexual wellness brand. And that has done really well. In fact, you know, probably going to do some more with them. Uh, and yeah, then we've got a load of other uh, brands in the pipeline. But it's really, it's a really exciting time. It's kind of you know, very much of the moment, right? Mm. You've got a lot of creators who are starting brands. And by the way, I think there's lots of areas we can move into, which are not necessarily just that, but sort of social commerce, 
you know, the crossover between um, commerce, social and entertainment, because that's always been there, right? Think of shopping centers. Mm. That's what that is. Mm. You know, think of the marriage between, I don't know, film and fashion and mm. pop music and fashion and look at all the big fashion brands, the way they advertise, they're like movies or music videos. So anyway, that's what we're doing now. It's going really well, very early stage. We raised a, a small round um, and yeah, it's it's going pretty well. Fantastic. I'm so pleased with you, Dom. Thank you very much. Congratulations. You've Thank got you. the scars and yeah, rising yeah, like yeah. a phoenix from the yeah. ashes. <laughs> yeah. So you've so this one now, so Kirsch is venture backed. Uh no. At the oh, moment sorry. it's I mean, we've got VCs who invested in a personal capacity. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you've had a is it just one round so it's far? just one round so, so pre-seed. Yeah. Okay. But we'll be, you know, we'll be going out for another one soon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exciting. Very exciting. And so sat here now, business number five, mm. as well as holding these various employment roles. You've worked for financial corporate, you've worked as an advisor. So you've got this really blended mix in terms mm. of your kind of career history so far what I guess if we look at the two side the employment and entrepreneurship how do you think one has helped the other I guess more specifically how has your roles either being an advisor or just generally you know working for somebody else in employment how has that helped you be a better entrepreneur do you reckon that's a good question um I mean the first thing I would say is the, when I worked in the city, I worked at Goldman Sachs and the work ethic there is insane. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Insane. So, um, like, give us an example. So, well, okay. I'll give you a good example. Uh, one time I got in the lift and uh, the lifts at Goldman were really weird because no one would talk to each other, by the way. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, some people, if they knew each other, they would talk, but yeah, uh, a woman got on. And she knew someone else in the lift and they started talking. And the woman who was in the lift already, uh, she said, oh, how are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm all right, but I haven't been home in three days. She'd been in the office for three days. Wow. No joke. As in like, what, Just working. bag under yeah, desk? Yeah, well, I don't even know if she slept. I mean, I'm assuming she did. But everyone had toothbrushes there, you know, with fresh shirts and stuff. Yeah, it was an extreme work ethic. And I wasn't that kind of... I, by the way, I don't think that's the best way of working. No, it's just a fast track to burnout, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it gave me the appreciation that, you know, you've got to work hard and there's always mm -hmm. someone who is going to be working mm -hmm. harder. So that, I think, was really important to carry through. I think um, dealing with other people, because if you're doing a startup, it's often a very small team and you do tend to hire people who are either your friends or that you know through acquaintances. So it can be a bit, you know, you can get into a bit of a, um, you know, everyone's thinking in the same way. You don't have, chamber. yeah, exactly. So, uh, but when you work in big organizations, it tends not to be like that. And mm. actually, I mean, I saw a funny thing the other day. Um, it was a meme on Instagram, but it was like, you know, a 20 year old guy in his first job saying, well, I never, expecting my best mate to be the 45 year old divorced guy <laughs> you know that happens when you're in a big office you know you're suddenly you're with people who you would never hang out with and you actually get on really well with them who knew right I so yeah i think that that stuff does make you a better 
entrepreneur, I would say, because you need to understand Different customers people, anyway, yeah. right? Yeah, That's the most important thing. Amazing. So just being open to that sort mm. of thinking. Yeah. And one of my last questions is, or having already known you for a while, you are also one of the most optimistic people that I know. I'm really curious, where does that come from? And especially, again, this is now your fifth business. You've really been through the ringer. You've had your tough times. You've had all these failures and things behind you. So where do you draw upon to keep going? Is that just a natural trait? I don't, or? yeah, I think it's just natural. Um, I think, you know, I think my father was definitely very much like that. He was an entrepreneur himself. Right. Um, uh, don't get me wrong. There are like dark times in Dom's life. <laughs> yes, I did refer to myself in the third person. <laughs> um, yeah, but I uh, sometimes they can be really difficult to overcome if you're like on your own. But um, no, I just think, yeah, maybe I'm just delusional. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I do, I do. I do. I do like life. I don't like everything about life, but most of it, I think, you know, we're pretty pretty lucky and i'm exceptionally lucky you know i do appreciate that great um so yeah i i don't know i always think there's a chance around the corner and also going back to what we talked about at the beginning i just you know it's not that i have this kind of fatalistic sense that oh my father died young therefore i'm definitely also going to die young. i don't hopefully not right mm. but i do think it gives you an appreciation that time is finite mm. and you can't just be doing you know you can't be living someone else's life mm. uh, and obviously there's a certain amount of privilege that allows you to think like that right we're not all lucky enough that we can follow uh, our true desires in life but yeah i for me i made that decision that i'm gonna just keep pursuing it within you know, the realms of possibility, what I want to do. Mm. That can be challenging to be around, by the way. You should probably ask my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> but yeah, so um, yeah, that's just my kind of outlook on life, yeah, I think. Yeah, brilliant. And so closing words to any entrepreneurs who are listening to this, who have maybe had failed businesses themselves, or maybe if they're feeling a bit like, oh, in between, or how do I pull through? Having kind of had quite a few of these ventures before, what's your... What would be your final kind of words of wisdom, your advice to them? Uh, I would say, um, first of all, you should be really clear in your thinking of, of whether, you know, startups are for you or the entrepreneurial lifestyle is for you because it's not for a lot of people. Let's be clear about that. Um, but also, you know, failure is very sort of, fleeting and it doesn't define you as much as you think it does mm -hmm. unless it's an absolute disaster right unless you mm -hmm. do something idiotic as well mm -hmm. or unless you're incredibly unlucky but as i said earlier people really don't think about you as much as you think as mm -hmm. we all think they do mm -hmm. you know so no one like they move on very quickly with their problems and you know i've been incredibly harsh on myself in the way i because my goals have always been i want to build a unicorn and that I haven't done yet, but we've had amazing success in terms of mm. how many people we got to use our products. We made money with all of them, not not with App Apparel, but you know, um, we've had users from around the world. We've people have 
loved what we're doing. Mm. You know, people who know about the industry and they go, yeah, this is something cool. So, you know, cut yourself some slack is probably what I'd say. I it's probably that. not as bad as you're making it out to yourself. Yeah. Funny enough, just on that before we wrap, it reminds me of literally just last night, I heard about the story of how Megadeth were founded, which was, you may well know, this was completely... I'm not a massive Megadeth fan. This I... was completely new to me, but basically it was one of the um, group members was ousted by Metallica. Oh, really? And his goal was to build a band was right. to build a group that was more successful than metallica wow. it was a pure like revenge thing yeah because he was so hurt and because you know if i love favorite kicked out of the group and uh and never achieved never overtook metallica yeah. in terms of any success metric and there was this big concert festival where they were one of the headliners but the main headliner was metallica mm. so it was a very even in terms of just like the poster design it was a very visual representation yeah. with metallica across the top and then them underneath and actually the success that they had in uh if you look at them objectively in a standalone way it's just they got to tour all over the place yeah. i don't have all the stats but like you know they they were still very successful yeah 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 but the founder of that group or whatever the musical equivalent uh term is for that never saw it was very you know there's this analogy he never saw himself as a success because that goal was just so yeah you see that's that's Everest. tragic really but this is similar yeah. to what you've experienced isn't yeah, it? yeah yeah you've not built your unicorn and so it's how all these other businesses are framed but actually as you say you have enjoyed all of this yeah success that's justified in its own way yeah and you think about how many people's lives you touch with these kind of um products and you know even if it's just a little bit of joy that you're bringing into their lives mm. well that's definitely not a failure, is it? Mm, definitely. So, all right, wonderful. Well, yeah. lovely note to leave this on, Dom. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure thank you. to have you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It really does mean a lot to help this show. I really appreciate your support. Thank you so much again for listening. Bye.